I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and Me Too to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This is an idea travelogue. It lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. A few weeks ago, presidential candidate Joe Biden expressed regret over Anita Hill's treatment during the 1991 confirmation hearings for Clarence Thomas. As the committee chairman, I take responsibility that she did not get treated well. Now, a few days later, his wife, Jill, said in an interview with NPR that it's time to move on. I mean, he's called Anita Hill. They've spoken. He apologized for uh, the way the hearings were run. And so now it's kind of it's time to move on. So I'll admit this question is personal to me. It's personal because I sat in the hearing room. I watched the Senate Judiciary Committee take Anita Hill apart. One of the consequences of Joe Biden's mismanagement of the hearing was that he was responsible for deciding that other witnesses who were prepared to talk about Clarence Thomas's behavior was never heard. It was never heard because Joe Biden decided not to call these witnesses. To this day, many people don't know that there were other women who were willing to testify. So when I look at the presidential field and I see Joe Biden as one of the front runners for the Democratic nomination, I keep going back to that moment and I'm still waiting for some indication that the same person that presided over that horrendous hearing is not the same person who is asking for our vote. I want to hear him talk about how some of the questions that he asked Anita Hill reflected the insensitivity to how a woman who's experienced sexual harassment is often made to testify in a way that makes her even more stigmatized. I want to know that Joe Biden recognizes that Anita Hill had no one defending her and no one actually prosecuting Clarence Thomas. I, I want to know that he recognizes what role he played in the imbalance. Once I hear that, then I might feel a little bit more comfortable recognizing that the lesson from that debacle has been learned so that we know that that behavior will never happen again. But I haven't heard it yet. You know, I think what she wants you to say is, I'm sorry for the way I treated you, not for the way you were treated. I think that would be well, closer. Well, but but if you go back and look what I said and didn't say, I, I, I don't think I treated her badly. In this episode, I had the opportunity to talk to Tony Award-winning playwright and activist Eve Insler, and also philosopher Kate Mann about what it could mean for perpetrators and bystanders to genuinely confront and also atone for the violence that they've either committed or enabled. In these discussions, we touched on the transformative potential that true apologies can do. 
and what it is in our culture that places so much more of a penalty on women for not accepting half-hearted expressions of regret, what I call bystander apologies, than it does on men for making such disingenuous apologies in the first place. I turned to Eve Ensler to talk about her latest book, The Apology, which came out on May 14th. It's written as a letter from a point of view of her late father, who apologized in the book for years of childhood physical and sexual violence. Hi, I'm Eve Ensler. I'm a writer. I'm an anti-racist feminist. I'm an activist. I'm a dreamer. And that's just getting started (laughs) with all the things you do and are. So tell us, why did you decide to write this book, especially why now? It just seems so timely. Well, um, as you know, because we've been in this struggle a long time together, I've been in this movement to end violence against women for the last 21 years. I've been watching and waiting as we have struggled in this movement to bring consciousness around violence against women, to break the silence, to call men out, to tell our stories. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for men who have been called out or have not been called out to come forward and to reckon with what they've done, to become accountable, to do self-interrogation and self-revelation and look into one's past, look into toxic masculinity, look into the history of patriarchy, look into their childhood to see what could have led them to become batterers or rapists or, or harassers or sexual molesters. And sadly, I have never heard a man publicly apologize in a way that feels satisfying. And and why do you think what what's missing that makes it so difficult for men to apologize? Well, it was interesting in the course of writing this book because my father really did talk to me in in and at one point he told me that any man who apologizes is a traitor. Um they essentially betray other men. They break the the male code, they break the male bond. And if once one man begins to apologize, the whole story begins to come tumbling down. So it's almost as if there's this silent, unspoken bond between men that they will go to prison, they will lose jobs, they will lose status, but they will never really be accountable. They will never say what they've done is wrong. They will never look at a woman and feel what she's feeling let it enter their heart and let her know they have felt what she's feeling. They will never say to her, what you know to be true is true. I did what you think I did to you. Because that would somehow shatter the whole story of Mm -hmm. patriarchy. Mm -hmm. So you said you talked to your father, but of course you also say that your father was dead for decades when you began to write this book. So help listeners understand how you created the dialogue with your father and how that became this apology. Um, I really didn't know what was going to happen. I knew I wanted to write a letter to myself saying the words I needed to hear that I had never heard from my father. I didn't know what was going to show up. I didn't know what was going to happen. 
And I think part of writing this book was realizing that we have a relationship to the dead. But another part, which was really stunning to me, was this really acute realization that often victims hold their perpetrators deeply inside them, particularly if they're family members, Mm -hmm. because we have had to learn what their movements are, what their moods are. So I realized I had essentially been in dialogue with my father for 65 years, Mm -hmm. whether it was conscious or not. Mm -hmm. And this was the very exciting thing I discovered, that up until the point of writing this book, I had accepted a given, which would which was essentially I would always be victim to my father's perpetrator. That was the kind of paradigmic um, setup. Yeah. Like this was going to be the life I led. And then I realized that through dialogue, I could shift who I was and who my father was. He could go from being a monster to an apologist and I could go from a victim to a person who was having agency over the apology I wanted. Mm-hmm. And that completely shifted everything. Now, I imagine that some folks who believe they're owed an apology would be curious as to how creating that apology through your own internal dialogue with your father could actually be transformative and healing. So for those who say, if I can't get it from the perpetrator, I don't see how I'm going to be liberated, how that shift actually happens. What do you say to them? Well, first, I want to say something about the book. The book is an offering. It's not a prescription. It's not a must do. It's not a have to do now. I truly trust survivors to know their own process, to know when they're ready to do things. I couldn't have written this book three years ago, five years ago. I wasn't ready to consider an apology. I wasn't ready to even, I was too angry. I was too bitter. I was too, I, you know, so This isn't something anyone has to do. I'm sharing an experience that worked for me after many, many years of recovering from my own wretched childhood. What this book did is gave me a certain kind of agency where I didn't feel like a victim anymore. It was like I took it into my own hands. It was like, no, okay, you're not going to give me the apology. I'm going to give me the apology. I am going to imagine the words I need to hear to heal. I'm going to give myself this love, this accountability, this, this process. And to tell you the truth, I don't think it would have been better with my father. Like, I think it, it, you know, I, I, I I think he would have always reneged here and there or held back here and there, right? right, Where I could get complete. You can get it all. I got it all. Does it take radical empathy for him, for you to be able to get into his life and his headset and his damage to be able to capture each of those dimensions of the why. I think that was the hardest part of the book was feeling my father's pain, feeling my father's brokenness, feeling what he had gone through that had made him a person who could become a sadist. It was heartbreaking. And I didn't want to feel that. I think for me, even though finding that empathy was grueling, like literally I would find myself some nights curled up in a, in a little fetal ball mm-hmm. position, it was so liberating because I realized there were places in me that I really loved my father. And I had cut those places off 
because I had made him just a kind of um, monolithic monster. And nobody's a monolithic monster. I think the majority of people are people who were not born that way, were affected, were hurt, were broken, were abused, were demeaned, and they become somebody else. And then they pass that on. Carl Jung once said that in order to survive this century, we have to learn how to hold two existing opposite ideas at the same time. So this book was really about that. It was about holding my father accountable, Mm -hmm. being furious at my father, Mm -hmm. and feeling for my father. And the juxtaposition was a kind of uh, psychic washing machine, you know, (laughs) that, that kind of cleaned away a lot that need to be cleaned away. It's, it's holding those opposites and being in that kind of alchemic world of contradiction that I think amazing things begin to happen. And let me say what Anita Hill has said about your book. As only she can, Eve Ensler shares the story of her father's ultimate betrayal with both unflinching candor and immeasurable grace. Through sheer creative force, she takes us on a journey to healing. Through in, Though Insler's story is deeply personal, its lessons are universal. So it, it is um, timely, I guess, perhaps ironic, that your book is coming out, you know, um, in the same kind of news cycle as her own struggle to articulate the fact that even though Joe Biden finally has said something like, I take responsibility, it's still not an apology. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, what else can he do? Um, So another full disclosure moment. I was on CNN uh, last week with Barbara Boxer, and here's what she said. The man has said he takes full responsibility. The man has said he regrets. The man has used the word sorry. I don't know what else he can do. Some people will never, ever get past an injurious act, and you described it as such, and it was. And no one knows it more than I, believe me, because I was in the middle of the battle. But it may be that maybe somebody can never be forgiven by somebody else or by a certain group of people. I would hope not, because I think life is too short. So what... What answer do you have to what else he could do? First of all, I want to say that quote from Anita Hill, I can't even tell you how much that meant to me. Mm -hmm. Like it was my dream to have her on the book Mm -hmm. because I feel who deserves an apology more More. than Anita. I mean, she is the epitome of the person who deserves an apology. And I'm really moved that Anita Hill is demanding uh, an authentic and thorough accountable apology. That's right. Because I think... What, and this is going back to the alchemy of the apology. Any survivor knows when they have received a true apology. You have gone so deeply into examining your role in creating harm, the impact that has had on the person you have done it to, and the impact that may have had on all the people around them. Mm -hmm. In the case of Anita Hill, what was done to Anita Hill wasn't just done to Anita Hill. It was done to millions of women by discounting her, by delegitimizing her, by turning her into something that she was not, that was done to all of us. It put a perpetrator at the Supreme Court who is now making you know, decisions 
about cases impacting women. So we have a perpetrator making decisions. And the entire democracy. I firmly believe that Clarence Thomas being on the Supreme Court is one of the reasons why 45 is now in the White Absolutely. House. So the apology may be broad you know, and deep across a number of constituencies who have lost because of this victory that Joe Biden made possible. So when you when you think about the um, application of this outside the context of um, your own relationship with your father, what do you imagine the possibilities of being able to develop a broader cultural practice around apologies might be? And that's such a good question because I think it's like, how do we go from the personal and, as you said, ramp it up to the cultural, political, historical? If we look at what was done to the indigenous in this country, there's never been an apology. There's never been a reckoning. There's never been a sitting down and laying out of, we did this, 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 this. And there's never been reparations. So, okay, then we look at the story of, of African Americans in this country. Mm-hmm. And not only has there not been apologies, there's just been repeated and repeated injustices, which is linked to no apology. Because when you are never accountable, when you never own what you have done, when you never speak out loud what you have done. And you try to discredit the people that you've done it to. So when I think about what this American society has done, for example, to um, the descendants of slaves, it seems as though the desire to avoid responsibility for slavery in the first place has really provided the the dynamic um, that underwrote uh, lynching, that underwrote uh, segregation, that underwrites today mass incarceration, that allows the rest of the world to look at us as damaged people who should not be believed, right? So if that is, if that's a model, if what you've shown us is a model, how might that play out on a societal basis, on a cultural basis? How can a group of people Um, imagine what that apology might be and what good might it do. We have forever needed to just stop and do some kind of reconciliation process in this country, looking back at beginning with Native Americans Mm -hmm. and saying, what happened? What did happen here? What is the truth? Let's put out the truth. Let's state the truth. Mm -hmm. And then let's begin to look at what we have to do to make amends that's going to allow people who were damaged and hurt and broken and raped and murdered to live in peace, Mm -hmm. right? Same story with African-Americans. And I think part of what all families do, what cultures do, what politics does is we have diabolical amnesia. (laughs) It's just diabolical. We just erase and erase and erase the story. Mm -hmm. So part of an apology is remembering. It's remembering. It's like bringing back what has really occurred. And that's, that's work. You have to go back and do the work of saying what actually happened. Mm -hmm. So maybe there could be ways we begin in our schools that there are classes on apologies and reckonings Mm -hmm. with our our ancestors our foremothers our forefathers are like how do we do that Mm -hmm. what is a process that we could begin to do and that all of us are a part of because all of us are carrying it Mm -hmm. whether we think we were there whether we think that wasn't our time 
It's all in our DNA. And until it's uprooted, it, it, it can't be like an individual thing. It's got to be kind of a, a collective enterprise. And that collectivity actually is another part of the of the challenge, right? Because there are the direct perpetrators, but then they're, they're, they're the enablers, the witnesses, the ones that are persuaded to play along. And what's so fascinating and infuriating is some of those people are the very people who are harmed by many of the things that we're seeking apology for. So what, what is your thought about, about that? It's such a good question. I mean, I think I think the always the hardest thing is to see people who have been crippled within the same systems of patriarchy or racism or fear or whatever who are accomplices even in 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 passive ways to perpetrators how they take responsibility for their own behavior. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And part of that is willing ignorance right? Willing ignorance, where you don't teach yourself or learn what is going on with Black people, what is going on with Native Americans, what is going on with the immigrants at the border, what's happening, go and look at it. And I think not knowing is a form of being an accomplice. Mm -hmm. So part of it is, is how do we wake up to that, which is also deserving of apology. You know, not seeing what people are going through, not opening your eyes because it's not in your neighborhood or not in your proximity is a form of abandonment. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Mm-hmm. And and I think, I guess this is where I am. Mm-hmm. We're calling out, we're saying the story, but where does the transformation come? Where are we going to get to the point where people go, aha, mm-hmm. I've got to step up to be part of this engagement and we're not going to throw throw, you know, gasoline on you. We're going to actually walk with you through a process Mm -hmm. where you're going to do deep dive into yourself to investigate who you are, what you are, how you became this, and how you're going to become someone else. This is the next step of our movement. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, what we will do, and I, I, I fear is we, and I've been doing this for years, is calling out, telling the stories. Men back, get backed up in a corner for a while. They get quiet. Mm-hmm. But then they're out and about in another year. All the, all the perpetrators it's are like back a, and about. It's like a timeout. Yeah, it's a timeout. <laughs> but we know about punishment. Yeah. It's not an educator. It's, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's a revenge maker. What do you think um, the impact of this book is for people who've done ordinary harms to other folks. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about heavy stuff right now, but you know, we could all use help making, you know, apologies. So how has this book now that you've written it, helped you think about your own apologies? Well, it's a very good question. Um, this is what I was thinking because I'm doing a sermon on Sunday, which I've never done before, but I was even the pulpit. I'm excited. Um, (laughs) But what I was thinking about is this. When we're children, we're taught prayer, Mm -hmm. right? And prayer requires devotion. It requires concentration. It requires going into yourself, connecting with a spirit beyond. Mm -hmm. But we're not taught how to make an apology. And to me, it's the medicine. Mm -hmm. How do we keep going as human beings if we don't know how to do the work of apologizing. Right. It, it, it's like there's no way through. 
So what happens is we don't know how to apologize. Someone gets mad. The other person gets mad. There's just a war. Mm -hmm. There's a stop. Mm -hmm. There's a death. There's a, as opposed to if you were brought up as a child to learn the practice of apology. It's a practice. Mm -hmm. It requires humility. It requires openness. It requires deep self-reflection. It is a form of prayer. Mm -hmm. I, when I finished the book, I wrote three apologies Mm -hmm. to people who I'd always held responsible for something. And I realized, no, I had a piece of that. Mm -hmm. What was my piece of that? So we do it for ourselves. So Eve, I would imagine there's some people listening who know that they have an apology to give but they just don't know where to start. So if this were a how-to moment, what would you tell that person to do step-by-step? Well, if there's someone who's done something, um, a rape or a heinous crime, I would suggest that you find clergy or you find a therapist or you find a counselor or you find somebody working in this field and you sit down with them and you ask them to be your support, Mm -hmm. to work with you to go through a process where you can start unpeeling the layers of what you've done. I mean, I really think to go through this kind of thing is not an overnight experience. You got to self-interrogate. You've got to go through it and you need support Mm -hmm. because it's painful. Mm -hmm. And I think there are many counselors out there who would be more than happy to go through this process with you. I think there are people who are doing this work of restorative justice who would be happy to do this work with you. Um, I think what's really important is that you don't get so panicked and so freaked out by the process that you quit so that you really surround yourself with support to go through it. So having the commitment first to actually go through it to the end. Exactly. And I want to just say to survivors, you know, um, every survivor doesn't want an apology. And and that is totally in, in the agency of the survivor. Mm-hmm. There is no must do. And I'm going to reiterate that. But I also think that it's up to the survivor to determine if the apology has been a satisfactory one. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and, and I think if you're going to make an amends or make an apology directly to the survivor, um, there's got to be a discussion about what that survivor needs to hear mm-hmm. before you make an apology mm-hmm. so that you can then do the work mm-hmm. of going in mm-hmm. and, and feeling what she's feeling and being aware of the impact of what your actions were and, 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 and evidencing that you have done the critical work of of self-interrogation, that you could never possibly do that again. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's that's what a survivor wants to yeah. know. Yeah. Not just, this happened, sorry. Yeah, no, <laughs> exactly. This happened, no. why it happened. I see what it means to you that it happened. I'm telling you what was going on inside me that made it happen. And this is why I can tell you it will never happen again. Exactly. And you know, the truth of the matter is when somebody really does that, mm-hmm. it's totally apparent. It's not a question. You know the length somebody has gone to in themselves to deliver that kind of apology. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, I think I'm just realizing right now, the apology the making, the creation, the journey towards the apology is the, is the alchemy yeah. that changes you mm-hmm. 
into someone else. So basically, the apology is the final step. Exactly. Because by the time you've gotten there, you have had to become someone else other than the person you began as. And you have done a preview of your sermon. This is a sermon, right? What the text is, what the meaning of the text is, what the spiritual challenge is, what what exists for you on the other side of taking this spiritual challenge and what the world would look like once we do. Thank you, Eve, for spending this time with us. Oh, thank you, Kim. It's been amazing. We turn to philosopher Kate Mann, who in 2017 coined the term empathy to describe the, quote, inappropriate and disproportionate sympathy, unquote, powerful men often receive in cases of sexual assault. Recently, Kate published Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. Now, you know, there are times when you remember when you first heard about a concept or more broadly really understood it. I am here because I believe it is my civic duty to tell you what happened to me while Brett Kavanaugh and I were in high school. There was this moment, I think, across the political spectrum. I was watching Fox because I was really curious to see how they were going to respond. And everybody had that oh shit, look, (laughs) she is credible. This, it seems like he really did this. I think it lasted about a heartbeat. And I remember thinking, Kate Mann, empathy. There was that heartbeat where, you know, she was credible, she was sincere, she was deferential. And then Kavanaugh comes in and it's clear within three seconds. This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit. He was belligerent. He was petulant. He was furious. And that shift that you mentioned before just seems to me exactly right, that even people who said Christine Blasey Ford was credible and her performance had moved them, there was this switch to you know, sympathizing and empathizing with white male pain or displays of pain, no matter how self-caused that pain was, no matter who was responsible for that pain, namely Brett Kavanaugh, it was taken seriously in a way that was, it was just shattering, I think. And so when you, when you use this moment as um, a sort of dictionary uh, illustration <laughs> of empathy, um, what's in the first line when, when, when you explain empathy to, to folks who haven't read your book? Yeah, so I like, I mean, I think you, you introduced the concept perfectly because I like to focus on it using normative terms mm-hmm. because I think... Um, you know, sympathy can often be a good thing. It's a valuable human moral resource, but it's the inappropriate and disproportionate sympathy that is sometimes extended to privileged men over their female victims. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of, I mean, completely, I think, immoral and rationally indefensible reaction that's embodied by people like um, Lindsey Graham, Mm -hmm. who yells, you know, um, about, you know, kind of incoherently about ruining a man's life. It's just a pitch-perfect histrionic performance of white, fragile masculinity. And that does work. It does political yes, work. Exactly. It and works. that And that's and that's so much of, 
you know, what your uh, framework helps us see in a more clear-eyed way. I mean, it's 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 perhaps inviting to to dismiss it as. Um, you know, uh, an example of white male fragility. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's important to recognize that that fragility is galvanizing. Yes. It is um, a performance of power. And the power is not just in the fact that men can do it and not be sanctioned for it in the way that we know Christine Blasey Ford would have been mm-hmm. if she'd come in, you know, sweating and screaming and spitting. But in a addition, the way that it disciplines and galvanizes not just men, um, but but everyone in into support. And, and, and that's a, that's a moment. That's an epiphany, you know, to say this this little performance that we see is part of a broader project um, that that you describe in your book. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think that's you've put it so powerfully and so aptly. It I mean, those performances, they're on their face ridiculous, but at the same time, one of the the things they achieve is making people, and you know, I want to say I think white women are especially susceptible to this mechanism. So this um, concept for me was partly an exercise in really, you know, I sometimes call myself a recovering hempath because I think these... <laughs> You know, these tendencies are like deep. You feel guilty for questioning white men performing this kind of, you know, both ridiculous but also highly immoral, highly manipulative. There ought to be no guilt for saying, wait on, you know, he's not being held accountable. He hasn't expressed any contrition. He hasn't adequately apologized. This is not the moment for sympathy and forgiveness. It's morally appropriate to be on the side of his female victims. And yet that for me used to be an occasion for guilt and shame of a kind I felt was really interesting and needed to be called out. The concept of empathy, I think, was meant to highlight the fact that this wasn't idiosyncratic. There's a deeply socialized tendency amongst not just white men, but also white women to rally around our white men and to defend and uphold their reputation no matter how little they deserve it and how much damage they're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, as you talked about the tendency to rally around, of course, I couldn't help but think about the connection between the Kavanaugh hearing and the hearing that had happened decades earlier, the Clarence Thomas-Anita Hill hearing. And now that is back in the news uh, with, Mm -hmm. I don't know what we want to call whatever it was that Joe Biden said um, in expressing regrets about what had happened. I call it like a, a bystander apology, you know, I saw something that happened, and boy, do I regret that that happened to you. With fairly little uh, active voice in in expressing, you know, any amount of contrition for the precise thing. The precise question about the apology is, tell us what you're apologizing for. What happened? What role did you play? Yeah, I mean, I love everything you've identified about the limitations of his kind of fumbling non-apology, which really wasn't specific enough 
to be called an apology. And, you know, and I take Anita Hill's testimony on this to be the last word. You know, she said not just that it was not satisfying, but that it wasn't an apology. I love the idea of a drive-by apology because it was that sense of, well, this happened, not what he did as chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Even, you know, his remarks on The View, if I understand rightly, he he said, um, you know, something like, I didn't treat her badly, and then, you know, realized he'd kind of put his foot in it, that that wasn't playing well, and then sort of opportunistically said, well, I take full responsibility. But again, just as you pointed out, he didn't take responsibility for anything specific, like not calling other witnesses, like having let the proceedings become horribly rife with misogynoir. I mean, his own questioning as well. Can you tell the committee what was the most embarrassing of all the incidences that you have alleged? Just completely inappropriate. And so he had at least three concrete things he could have said he had done wrong. And that admission was just nowhere on the table. So, I mean, the idea, too, that someone like Jill Biden is now in the position of saying it's time to move on, I mean, it's just kind of a travesty, but does strike me as very much in the mode of the kind of toleration of and enabling of misogyny that really, you know, it allows for such bad behavior to go on. Particularly, the role of white women really needs to be highlighted of just kind of having terribly low expectations um, and kind of making those who would hold someone properly, appropriately accountable feel almost guilty for not being ready to move on. Yeah, which which raises, I guess, the question about how we might think about the implication of empathy when it comes to demanding that women accept non-apologies. How do you explain to people when they say, well, you know, come on, what else do we expect? That that the answer to that is both the concrete things that he could do, but also um, how their reaction is a, a, a reflection of empathy. No, totally. It's a really crucial way of enabling and, you know, aiding and abetting misogyny in action. And often, I think, the women who don't immediately extend empathetic forgiveness to these perpetrators um, will then be subject to various forms of misogynistic policing, you know, including tone policing, and punishment for not being, um, you know, for not being giving enough, using the analogy of the, the giving tree or the giving she, this, as I think of it, incredibly um, creepy and <laughs> implicitly misogynistic children's story by Shel Silverstein, um, where this, you know, the tree who's referred to using only the female pronoun gives everything she has to her, you know, beloved, um, you know, implicitly her, her son, just called the boy. And she gives and gives and gives her apples, her branches, everything she has. And he just, he never says a word of thank you. She constantly says sorry for not having more to give him. And he just keeps demanding more and more until she's an amputated stump. Mm, Wow. One of the things that women are asked to give is forgiveness. And I think that is part and parcel of how misogyny works systematically 
he does something wrong or ungrateful or misogynistic. He doesn't really apologize, and she is expected to dole out gratitude for scraps, morally speaking, and to forgive him his sins, you know, well before there has really been a, an adequate moral reckoning, adequate accountability, and yeah, and so it continues. And if she's not willing to do that, she will be subject to more in the way of misogynistic reprisal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the fact that this is playing out in what many people will see as the, um, I don't know, the the after the injury part of the injury, right? It's playing out um, in a moment where, okay, we just want everyone to come together and get along, that that we don't see the misogynistic dimensions of it playing out. And I think our inability to read this moment as being every bit as much about um, mm-hmm. misogyny as the original moment is what makes it so dangerous. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I couldn't agree more. That's, I think that's an incredibly powerful way to put it because one of the the real betrayals in all of this when it comes to trying to address misogyny is, you know, people who appear to care and get it to a certain extent in the moment when it's, you know, acute action is needed or there is um, immediate damage being done to someone's well-being and reputation. But then memory for this, you know, for white women to sort of say anything about it being time to move on, you know, partly in the interests of, uh, you know, political um, convenience, I think that's it's such a moral mistake. I'm interested in how we can address it because... I think you're absolutely right that it's often in the aftermath that that betrayal kicks in. This is going to be a year where we're celebrating the uh, centennial of the 19th Amendment. And Mm. there's a lot of um, question about will we be able to really confront the fact that this movement towards suffrage was one that was deeply, deeply racialized. Um, a moment of, you know, white women being disappointed about not getting something and then, you know, turning on, you know, their racial, you know, egalitarian commitments to demand something for themselves. Um, you know, it's there, there are many differences, of course, between that moment and this, but there's still a haunting sort of, you know, melody in the background of this. Like, okay, we had this Me Too thing for a minute. Um, We had a moment of elevating uh, Anita Hill, but we want something really badly uh, right now. And uh, we don't have time to continue to coddle uh, Black women and, you know, other uh, women of color. And so, you know, either take this apology or leave it. But we're moving on. There is, there is a little bit of that that I just feel like I'm sniffing in the air. That sounds so right to me. And it's so disturbing. And I, I have to say, if if I could retire, you know, one apparently benign word from the English language, a, a top contender right now for me would be coddle. Um, which is, it's also, you know, such a homophobic expression, you know, coming from Molly Coddling, um, Mm. the idea of mothers as, you know, somehow spoiling boys by being, Mm. you know, basically caring and interested in the emotional life of, of 
so I think, you know, the idea, yeah, it just, it so disturbs me that this is seen as something we, A, can't afford to do, i.e. to do justice to Anita Hill, and B, that anyone would think of it as <laughs> coddling rather than doing justice, you know, mm-hmm. long mm-hmm. overdue justice to someone who was incredibly betrayed mm-hmm. by so many people, including white women, including Democrats, um, you know, including people like Joe Biden, who has enjoyed a reputation for being, you know, decent on feminist issues, despite this travesty. Mm, um, despite despite the travesty. Yes, right. Exactly. You know, it, it does once again um, raise for me um, the absolute imperative that we think about these things you know, through an intersectional lens, right. um, the idea that we can uh, celebrate uh, Senator Biden as being good on women. Yeah. Right? When but, you know, having this thing in, you know, in in history about this particular woman, to me, is a moment of intersectional erasure. It's a, It's a way that we can still have it and not have to worry about this issue over here. So when you when you think about the relationship between this and 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 intersectionality, if you, many times throughout our interview, you've mentioned, um, you know, the racial dimensions of this. Um, so broadly speaking, how do you? Um, articulate the relevance of an intersectional analysis to the important work that that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's crucial. I mean, I think, you know, in some ways, empathy could be called wimpathy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's maybe not quite as catchy, but it's so so often a white Uh hymn who Mm -hmm. is the recipient of this disproportionate and inappropriate sympathy. There's something very systemic here because you know, Lucy Flores being Latina is also someone mm-hmm. who's, you know, tried to hold Biden accountable for his, you know, grossly inappropriate behavior towards her, one of the first Latina members of Nevada Assembly. You know, I, I don't think it's too strong a claim to say there is an implicit norm that for black and Latina women to challenge white male authority is just a recipe for empathy and wimpathy of a kind that will, you know, allow someone like Biden not just to get sympathy, but also to get the benefit of humorous applause when he then goes on to hug people a few days later. And he says, oh, don't worry, I have permission to hug this person and that person as if that's a hilarious joke. And that's well received. I think there is no adequate understanding of empathy that isn't intersectional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, a part of that is also recognizing that there are um, huge problems of empathy within uh, socially marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. So one of one of our uh, earlier podcasts was about R. Kelly. Um, our last podcast was, um, you know, featuring uh, D. Barts and uh, that was Beverly an Johnson. Episode. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah. And so, you know, the interesting thing is that when we when we look at these concepts, as as you know, you've brought us to uh, think about these dynamics, we can see it in society writ large. We can see it, you know, benefiting you know white men, and we can also see how even within communities, um, patriarchy plays its own unique role. 
um, in 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 the distribution of sympathy, in the sense of what is a, a sufficient uh, level of accountability for harm. Um, so these are all you know useful concepts to to help us name what's happening and imagine what we would want to see happen differently. Thank you so much, Kate Mann. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Intersectionality Matters is recorded and produced by Julia Sharp Levine. Additional support was provided by Jira Asim and Michael Kramer. Special thanks to Cornell and UCLA for recording today's episode and to Eve Ensler and Kate Mann for allowing us to interview them. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.